28. We're going to be jumping around a lot as we finish the book of Acts and finish out our series. Um, Redeemer Fellowship and the churches that Redeemer are planting, will be planting, are privileged to be a part of a network called Acts 29. And as we wrap up the final verses in a year-long study in the book of Acts and prepare for a new year together as a church, we're going to be starting a series on the five solas in two weeks and then the book of Jonah. Uh, I thought it would be fitting to both describe where the name came from, being that there's only 28 chapters in the book of Acts, and to use it as a way to wrap up our last year of studies and to charge the body to answer the implications of the gospel to live as sent out missionaries here on the Jersey Shore and beyond. Um, there's so many great networks out there that are seeing a lot of gospel fruit be born right now. So when the elders picked a network, we were looking at several different criteria. First, we were looking for theological clarity and a network that would help us to clarify what we believe and teach us and also help hold us accountable to teaching strong doctrine. You might not get all that excited about the ideas of networks, but it is exciting because you would want to make sure that we don't go off the rails someday and just start teaching according to our own desires any whims. So we've been assessed and are a part of a network that ensures that we teach with doctrinal integrity. We're looking for a network that was crystal clear on the gospel and would never change or add to or take away from or capitulate to the changes in culture because though the culture continues to change, though our methodologies of reaching the culture might change, the gospel forever stands and is forever unchanging. And we wanted a network that stood on the fact that the gospel is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We were looking for a network that held the things that we see as closed-handed issues. By closed-handed, we mean there's some things that we hold with an open hand that are open for debate. That if, if you disagree, that's fine. We can go ahead and debate until the cows come home. But we wanted a network that would affirm our closed-handed theological issues, such as reformed soteriology, meaning God's sovereignty in salvation, gospel centrality, that we don't teach the Bible as a book of moral codes, but we believe that Jesus Christ's redemptive work in the gospel is the very center that unlocks our understanding of who he is, his character, and helps us to see scripture rightly. Complementarian view of male eldership in a society that is becoming a bunch of chickified Nancy pantses. Um, a complementarian leadership in the home. Multi-generational discipleship and not just putting the same ages together, which is a common thing that you're seeing in churches today. That is a common movement. And to me, I read that wisdom. I read Solomon's sons, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, and how he just surrounded himself by the young men 
and neglected the wisdom of the older men to speak into his life, and it wreaked chaos for the kingdom of Israel. We believe in multi-generational discipleship. We wanted to be a part of a network that was pushing for racial and socioeconomic diversity and reconciliation. We see that as something that's big in our culture today. Churches that are led by a plurality of elders, not one person up front calling themselves the senior pastor. There is no position in the Bible called the senior pastor. The closest thing that you get to it is somebody that's called the chief elder. And do you know who the chief elder is? Jesus. Amen. I know that you guys probably get tired of hearing it. I'm going to say it until the cows come home. I'm not the chief elder. No other elder is the chief elder. Jesus Christ is the chief elder of this church. And we wanted a network that would push us towards that. We wanted a network that would be committed to both growth in holiness and sanctification and growth in conversion growth, not just transfer growth, and who see the gospel as the primary means, not only as the entry door for salvation, but the primary means for our sanctification and Christian growth. So for the time being, we found a home in Acts 29 because they have a sincere commitment to live out each of those areas. And I'm not bringing any of this up to try to wave the Acts 29 flag here. The only flag that we wave here is the Jesus flag. I'm bringing it up because we're thankful for the accountability, fellowship, theological clarity that comes through partnering with like minded churches. But of all the things that intrigued me about Acts 29 back in my 20s when I started pursuing that network was the concept behind the name. You know, as we've seen through a year of studying this book, the book of Acts only has 28 chapters. So the reason they chose the name Acts 29 is very fitting as we close out the book of Acts today. They chose it because of a strong belief that God is not finished yet and that his story continues. And when I say that God is not finished yet, I don't mean go and pull a Joseph Smith and go digging in your backyard looking for golden plates to add to the Bible. We believe that the Bible is complete. It's not going to be added to, but we believe that God is very much still at work here and now in the same way that he was in the book that we just spent the last year preaching through. Amen? We believe that God is at work in the way that the book of Acts showed us. So it's not like there was this amazing work back in the book of Acts and we look back at that as some kind of historical thing to long for in an idolatrous manner. We look at that and we say this is still the same God yesterday, today, and forever. The same spirit that indwells us and the same church that he is building. They chose that name because we believe that God is actually using us to build his church in the same way that the Holy Ghost was using early Christians 2,000 years ago. And we are getting to participate in a millennia-long legacy. They chose that name because we get to join God in what he's doing because he's not finished yet. And he's using unfinished, unperfect vessels like you and me to continue his work here on earth. And I don't know about you, but that gets me pretty excited when I think 
about it. So as we wrap up our study in this book, looking at the final three verses, and I'm going to be jumping around to a lot of other scriptures, we're going to see that the curious way that the Holy Spirit has Luke finish up the book is evidence of the fact that God is not finished yet, and the story continues, and the book of Acts does not end with a period, but it ends with a to be continued, and anybody that wants to go all grammatical on me and say, look, there really is a period there, it's not in the Greek, so um, there you go, and um, I also want to explain to you guys hermeneutically, meaning the principles we use for interpreting scripture why they didn't finish up and put a nice, tidy bow on the story of Paul, Peter, Luke, and the other apostles. I'm going to pray and we'll dig in. God, I ask that you would bless the teaching of your word. Lord, that I would teach it humbly and be wholly dependent on your grace. Lord, I pray for the hearers, that you would open their ears, open their hearts to hear and receive. In Jesus' name, amen. So, as the book ends, we see that they are still doing God's work, but the story is not really brought to completion. Look at verse 28 in the very last chapter, the very final three verses. It says, Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been seen to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years, meaning in prison, at his own expense meaning he paid to live in prison. And he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So as we look at verse 28, we see that Paul is still playing that same one-string guitar that I've talked about every single time I've preached up here and that we've been talking about throughout the whole series. Luke is very clear to include that he is still preaching the precious message of the good news, the gospel of salvation. In other words, the book ends with Paul doing the same exact thing that he's always done. He's preaching the gospel. Paul never missed out on an opportunity to preach the gospel because he understood the importance of, as he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, not regarding anybody in accordance to the flesh, but seeing himself as an ambassador of this message of Jesus Christ and one who holds the very words of eternal life. This guy isn't looking to ride off into the sunset. This guy isn't looking to feel sorry for himself, for the condition that he currently finds himself in. Even in the midst of this situation, there is still gospel work to be done. And as long as there is still breath in our lungs, we are there to remain and to be serious about the gospel. I mean, you often hear of deathbed conversions, meaning somebody coming to salvation on their deathbed. And I want to go out with a deathbed conversion of just preaching the gospel with the very last 
words that are left in my lungs. Anybody else have that feeling that the very last words that you want to be on your lips is the good news of Jesus? You want to be saying Jesus and finishing that sentence in the blink of an eye, being in his very presence and stepping into eternity. And that's the way that Paul is orchestrating these final days of his life. And as the final chapter of the book ends, Luke lists five things that the Apostle Paul was busy at work in while still in prison, mind you. So first of all, like I already mentioned, he's still preaching the gospel with fervency and with expectation that people will listen. Again in verse 28, Therefore let it be known to you this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. So first of all, like I already mentioned, he's preaching the gospel with fervency and he's preaching it with an expectation that the people that he's preaching to are going to listen and hear the things that he's saying. And before I move on to the second, I just want to take a moment to speak to your hearts. So if you've zoned out at all already, just tune back in. Let me speak to your hearts pastorally. Assuming that you do share the gospel, I'm going to work off of that assumption. Assuming that you do share the gospel with unbelieving friends and family, when you share the gospel, do you do so with dependency and expectancy and prayerfulness and expect that they will eventually listen, that the God who softens hearts is going to be taking those words of life and the very power of the gospel and softening the heart through the preaching of the gospel. Sometimes I think that people come across as defeated before the words of life even come out of their mouth. If you expect others to believe, they need to at least believe that you believe. There's a famous story of Whitfield when he was going to preach in the field during the Second Great Awakening. And Benjamin Franklin was caught up in the crowd as he's going to preach in Philadelphia. And they said, what are you doing? Why are you even going there? You don't believe. And he points to Whitfield and he says, I don't believe, but I believe that he believes. Do you have that kind of power? in your belief that as you preach about your belief in this life-changing message of the gospel that people believe that you really believe or have you allowed cynicism or discouragement to lower your expectations look paul could have had every reason to be cynical at this point but check this out this is this is pretty cool because it, it can be pretty easy to get jaded in this culture can it Um, He refused to get jaded because the power did not reside in Paul. The gospel was and still is, according to Romans 1, 16 and 17, the power of God unto salvation. That's never changed. So this was not coming from Paul. This was coming from God through a willing vessel. We need to approach this precious message like we still believe that it is every bit as powerful as it was in the book of Acts. And I really want to just do some heart work with you guys. Do you really believe that the preaching of the gospel is still every bit as powerful as it was in the book of Acts? 
I mean, do you live with that as the underlying belief in your life? That when Peter preached at Pentecost and 5,000 were added to the church that day, that wasn't some special gospel that he was given that we don't have access to. We still have the same gospel that was preached and that produced that fruit back then. The gospel is every bit as powerful as every page that we've preached as we've looked through the book of Acts. And Paul's chains did not change that whatsoever because guess what? You can't take away the power of the gospel by putting it in chains. They thought that they were silencing Paul, but all they were doing was giving him a whole new platform to be able to preach the gospel to a different group of people. Secondly, it says that he continued to minister in far less than ideal circumstances. And it says in verse 30 that he did so at his own expense. Succinctly put, Paul never expected that the ministry of the gospel would not cost them anything. Another heart question. I really just want to pepper your guys' hearts with questions. We're finishing a book. Usually preaching the final message of a series is kind of hard because most of the content has been delivered. So I just want to go in there and just knead the dough and do some heart work with you guys this morning as we finish up our text. Have you believed the American churchianity lie that you can live a gospel life and do so without cost? Have you believed the American churchianity lie that you can live a life for the gospel and do so without cost? And I really want you to just press in on that for a moment. The American church has bought this lie that we can have Christianity and just add it to the rest of the things in our life and have a Christianity that has no cost. I mean, as a matter of fact, the pendulum swung so far the other way that some people approach the church with the attitude of, well, what are you going to give me? What do you got for me to come and bless you with my presence? We've got Jesus who blesses you with his presence. That's what we've got. Now, I'm going to go ahead and make a big statement. If you've bought into the lie that you could have a costless Christianity, then I would bet that your life is bereft of any gospel influence whatsoever because you never see a costless Christianity. I've read this book cover to cover dozens and dozens of times, and I've never seen a costless Christianity in this book. The gospel is free. Seen costless Christianity. A gospelless Christianity is no real Christianity at all. I love how Paul says in Philippians, he prays this prayer. It's a bold prayer. Think through these words as I share his prayer. He says, Lord, I want to know you and the power of your resurrection. I want to share in your sufferings and be conformed to the very image of your death. And that's the kind of prayer that gives you a lump in your throat, doesn't it? It's a tough prayer. But we see that God answered that prayer. He, here, here he is at the end of his life, knowing Christ, knowing the power of his resurrection, having the honor of sharing in his sufferings, and even being conformed to the very image of our Lord's death. Third, Luke goes on to say that he welcomed all who came 
to him. That is utterly amazing. Look, the gift of hospitality that he demonstrated right into the end is astounding. You see it also in 2 Timothy chapter 4, which is the last letter that he wrote before he dies. He just starts naming all of these people, even his former enemy that he had a rift with, John Mark. And he's saying, just bring these people to me that I might have this season of hospitality. Look, as our nation becomes increasingly post-Christian, and even more so in other nations of this world, because I realize that to call this nation post-Christian and then to be sending out a missionary into Central Asia where they would long to be able to have the extent of Christianity that we have in this area. But as our nation becomes increasingly post-Christian, we're going to see less and less people become converted in settings like this and more and more people coming to know Jesus by sitting around our dinner tables as we welcome them into our lives. As I talk about the, the book of Acts and the story of the book of Acts and the ethos of the book of Acts continuing, if we want to see the fruit of the book of Acts, we have to be willing to put everything on the table and re-examine all of our methodologies. People who do not even know that they need Jesus, you know what they're not looking for? 40 days to anything. They're not looking for whatever slick program you're going to start running at your church. I'm astounded at all the things that have been called outreaches, which are really just programs for people that are already Christians, but maybe meeting in a different location. People that don't know that they need Jesus aren't going to come to your church building to come and find a Jesus that they don't even know that they need. But the one thing our Lord demonstrated so perfectly is that they are looking for community and they are looking for human touch. Every single human being ever created is looking for community, real, authentic, genuine community. And our Lord demonstrated it in such scandalous passages as John chapter 4 and John chapter 8 when he touches this adulterous woman that's brought to them and he dignifies her through human touch. That's never going to change. That's not a method of evangelism that you have to pick up some little pamphlet and preach four spiritual laws. That's just called giving people dignity because they're created in the Imago day. In the book of Acts, there were no buildings with steeples. And they didn't just expect people to just walk in and hear about a God that they didn't think that they needed. A missionary culture had to go to the people. They didn't expect that the people were going to come to them. And this is the direction that our culture is moving in, folks. I know that some churches take a philosophy that people need to be members before they can participate in a small group ministry. I want to say this as nicely as I can. That is the stupidest and most unbiblical thing that I've ever heard of. Why on earth would we tell a curious unbeliever that you are not welcome to come into my home while we live life, raise our children in a Christian manner, raise our children in the gospel, are surrounded by other Christians, study our Bibles, and demonstrate how we live out the one and others that God calls us to in the gospel. Why? We're cutting off our primary witness 
where we show people how we engage Jesus outside of Sunday mornings. If somebody has to be a member to come into your home, I encourage you, pick up a Bible and reread it because you missed something along the way. Are you willing to open up your home and your life for others to come to know Jesus? I mean, if you want to put it more practically, do you even have room in your life to be able to open up your home and your life for other people to enter in and be able to come and experience Jesus? Can you be able to say, as Paul did, come with me and worship as I worship the Lord? Well, how are they going to know that unless they see you doing it? Fourth, he continued to proclaim the Lord God and stay central to the person of Jesus. Look again in verse 31. It says that he stayed there proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. How counterintuitive was this? He, he's taking people, like, put yourself in faith on that scene. He's taking people who are living in the midst of the greatest kingdom ever known to man at that time. Yet here he is, sitting as a prisoner, telling people to look beyond the empty kingdom that they're living in to a greater kingdom that's still to come that they can't see with their eyes. So this man, who seemingly had nothing, was tasked with convincing people who seemingly had everything to believe in somebody that their militants had just executed, that they need to believe in this person so that they might experience something even greater still. Fifth, the text said that he did this with all boldness and without hindrance. I don't know about you, but I would consider a prison cell a hindrance. I've actually gotten, I've, I've been to this prison cell where he was at during this time. It's tall enough so that you can't stand up. You know how Rome is called the city on seven hills? Well, guess what flows downhill when you're on seven hills? Um, the main sewage line flowed right under his prison, and there was one hole underneath his prison through which he could get his water use the bathroom, whatever he chose to do with that hole was what he got to do with it. That's all he got. Yet he says this was not a hindrance. He doesn't view this as any type of hindrance from preaching the life-changing message of Jesus. Man, in all of that, if my boldness had landed me in that situation, I think that I might reel in that boldness a little bit. But it's hard to make somebody see something as a hindrance when they literally live life seeing everything that you put in front of them as an opportunity. I have another hard question for you. Are you constantly focused on your hindrances? Or are you constantly focused on your opportunities? You know it just by the content that comes out of your mouth. If everything that comes out of my mouth is, hey, could you pray for me? Complain, 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 trial, 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 trial. You might want to reevaluate that. Paul didn't look at these things as hindrances. He saw them as opportunities. People who just sit around constantly complaining about their hindrances are missing the fact that the Lord is literally surrounding them through those hindrances with gospel opportunities. And then just like that, the story ends. 
and it leaves you hanging. And it doesn't bring resolution to what happened to Paul or Peter or Luke or any of the other action figures that you might have collected as you went through this story. It just ends up with Paul preaching the gospel with fervency to a bunch of Gentiles with boldness. So I'm going to take a few minutes and bring in some other texts just to be able to illuminate what's happening as we finish here. So give me ten minutes to wrap it up. Not wrapping it up fits very much into who Paul is. And even more importantly, it fits into the pattern that we see in the Bible. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It'll also be projected up behind me if you don't want to turn over there. But listen to these words. He says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk. Not solid food, for you're not ready for it. And even now you're not ready for it, for you're in the flesh. For while there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? What is Apollos? What is Paul? What is Calvin? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants or he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, God's building. Paul was never interested in telling the story of Paul. Acts is not a biography. Like I told you from the first sermon, this story should have never been called the Acts of the Apostles because it's not about the Apostles. This is the Acts of the Holy Ghost magnifying the Son of God through the building of his bride known as the church. If they wrapped up the story of Paul and put a nice little ribbon on it, people would have been inclined to think that this was a nice little story about the Apostle Paul. So the ending would have been seen as the end of the story. But the final page is not the end of the story. It's the beginning of the story. It's where we're invited to enter into the story. Hence the name Acts 29 because the story continues. We get to enter into an ancient story that has been told long before we lived and stand on the shoulders of those who have labored so strong, and we get to be the beneficiaries of it. And the story unfolds in a similar manner. Some are planting those precious seeds of the gospel. Some of you guys are planters. And that's why I get so excited about all the children that I see in here each and every week. Look, it has no bearings. It has nothing to do with numbers for numbers' sake. It has to do with the fact that right now, right now, think about this. Pray for this. Back in those back rooms and scattered throughout the sanctuary, seeds are being planted into these young people that might take root and grow into something that's going to last for all of eternity. How awesome is that? When we're putting together our Sunday school lessons and having these Bible devotions with our kids, you're sowing seeds that might take root and plant into something that's going to bear something forever and ever and ever. 
Eternity's a long time. Thank your Sunday school teachers, by the way. As your pastor, I just want to express my deepest gratitude for all of the seed scatterers that we have here. Seed scatterers are often amongst the most dedicated gospel workers in any church. And you know what? They're often amongst the ones who get to see the littlest amount of fruit for what they've done. The thing about a seed scatterer, me and Marcy talk about it, she's one of the best seed scatterers I've ever seen. She just sits there and sows seed, sows seed, sows seed, so that a dummy like me could just come and just pluck up the fruit that she did all of this hard work for. Seed scatterers are usually just laboring so hard and somebody else gets to be the beneficiary of seeing that work come to completion. And if that's you, I just want to thank you so much. And I want to let you know that we're grateful for you. And more importantly, that God is grateful for you. And he takes delight in what you're doing. There's some of you that are those watering types of folks. And you're watering those precious gospel seeds through faithfully teaching God's word and making disciples. Thank you. Thank you sincerely. But God is the only one that can cause the increase. If you've ever been in an environment where somebody's trying to take credit for causing the increase, is it just me or does it come across as icky and superficial? I remember being in this church where this guy was like, come up to the altar, and on the count of three, the ghost is going to fall on this place. And I just explain, exclaimed some things that I'm not proud of from my seat. Uh, I wasn't happy with this. I was like, you think that you're going to cause the increase? No way, man. You might scatter you might water, but don't you dare put yourself in the place of God because God is the one who causes the increase. And all of these things show us two critical things. The story is not about us. The Bible's not about a bunch of heroes who are supposed to look good and teach us good moral lessons because, for one thing, the Bible's not really about all that many good people, is it? So the moral isn't go be like Paul, the murderer. Or have the faith of Abraham, who sold his wife twice and didn't learn the first time. Or be courageous like David, who saw a woman bathing and then killed her husband. That's not the moral of the story. Every time I hear one of those sermons on David and Goliath, it's like, go be like David! I literally throw up in my mouth. And this is the whole point. Because all of those people are just sinners who are supposed to take you and me and point us to the sinless one and show us our need for Jesus. That's why their stories are recorded in their warts and all. It's not about them, and it's not about you either. Can I hear you all say this together? It's not about me. It's very liberating. It's not. <laughs> Amen. Isn't that just a liberty? The story's about Jesus. We're just planters and waterers. God is the only one who can cause the increase. He's the star of the story. He's not just the star. He is the story. The whole story is him. And we're also not the ones for the growth or the building. Just like we just read in 1 Corinthians, we see it in the way that the book of Acts ends. We're just characters in the master's story, and you and I get the honor of being cracked pots in the master's hand. And as we come to an end of the book of Acts, it's pretty cool to see that the whole book, even the way it ends, is one giant circle. If you want the fancy word to leave here and impress your friends with, it's called a chiasm. It's just one giant chiasm that really reads like a commentary on Acts 1-8, where he said, You, church, 
be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. The gospel started in Jerusalem at Pentecost in chapter 2, and then it goes through Judea, and in chapter 8, we get to see the scandal of it spreading to Samaria, and it ends with the gospel going out into the very uttermost parts of the earth. And that's why the book didn't just end, because the gospel is still going out to the uttermost parts of the earth. There are still people in this day and age that have never heard the name of Jesus. So as we evangelize, as we plant churches, as we send missionaries, as we support global gospel works, we are joining in that commission in Acts 1-8 and taking the gospel to the very ends of the earth. We are the 29th chapter of the work that the Holy Spirit began in the book of Acts, and it continues even here now. We're still called to go out and scatter seed. We're still called to water the seed that's been planted. And God is still the one who's causing the increase, just as he promised that he would do. He's still at work, and he's still the one doing it. And I want to prove it to you from Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, that Christ promised that he would be the one who built his church. Upon Peter's profession of the gospel, he says... You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's another reason why the book of Acts doesn't end with a the end, or and then they all lived happily ever after, because he promised that he would build his church, and he is still actively at work building his church. Look, historically, even when it's looked like Christ was not building his church, he's still building his church because Christ promised he would and Christ cannot lie. When we entered into the dark ages where the gospel was being so obscured, God was raising up people to bring a revolt that would build the true church. When the purity of the gospel was covered over with tradition and superstition by the papists, God raised up a group of revolutionaries who saw the purity of, God, of the gospel as something that was worth giving their very life for. When the Enlightenment philosophy gave way to the scientific method and widespread secular humanism came in, God raised up a great awakening resulting in the largest revival since the book of Acts. And as that started to peter out, God raised up another second great awakening that was even bigger. And then God awakened his church to the fact that his son died for more than light-skinned European people, and he started to raise up a global movement of missionaries to go out into the world and reach people into the unreached parts of this great spinning ball. And the story continues. Through all the twists and turns, Christ continues to build his church, and we get to join him in his work. Can you think of anything more exciting to give your life to? I mean, that's not rhetorical. Can you think of anything more exciting to give your life to? You get to join the God of the universe in building his church. But let me point out something that many seem to miss. Christ said that he will build his church. That means it's not up to me to build his church. That means that it's not up to you to build his church. That means as Daniel goes out to plant Redeemer Brick, that Daniel's going to build his church, right? No. 
You should know the answer to that if I've preached this with any decency. Uh, um, that means that as Robin and Dave go back onto the mission field, that they're not going to build God's church. Another reason that I believe the story ends without making much of Paul is because Paul didn't build Jesus' church either. Jesus did. Paul just got a chance to participate in the work. Many people burn out because they think that it's their job to build the church. A mentor of mine once told me that every time he slips into thinking that it's his job to build the church, he reminds himself of the words of John the Baptist from John chapter 3 and just says, I am not the Messiah, and neither are you. When we're at our best, we're just mirrors reflecting people to the Messiah, and he builds his church. The book of Acts is the story of God actively building his church, and it ends that way because the Lord is still building his church and ain't over yet, and the story continues. I was going to get into the Great Commission and how we're used in the continuation of that story, but that's where I'll pick up with next week that as we teach people to obey all that he's commanded as we go out and baptize and make disciples of all the nations we are participating and getting to be a part of that story so a couple of questions for application as we wrap up do you believe that the gospel still possesses the same power that it did in the book of acts are we looking for costless american churchianity or gospel Christianity that comes with a cost? Are you willing to pray along with Paul that I want to know him and the power of his resurrection to share in his suffering and even be conformed into the image of his death that by all things that Christ might be preeminent and be proclaimed? Do you trust that Christ is building his church or do you fall into the thinking that the church is no longer being built or that it's dissipating or that it's falling away or the even more erroneous thinking that it's your job to build his church. And can you see how thinking that way might cause you to burn out as the story in your story as you open up your life to make disciples? God, I pray that we would be active in seeing your story continue here on earth, here and now. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, there is one part of the Great Commission that I didn't mention as we go to partake of communion that I thought would be fitting to lead us into communion. Our Lord 